Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. We are coming up on Easter 2019. So in this episode, we are reposting a sermon of Nick's from the year 2011, where he was going through the book of Mark and specifically where he was talking about the evidence for the resurrection. We hope this is helpful for you to build your own faith, as well as in the discussions that you might have with family members and friends around this time of year. So listen, learn, and thanks for listening. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about the resurrection of Jesus. Every once in a while, the pastor's got to do the evidence for the resurrection gig, okay? And today's the day. Um, If you were at the University of Wisconsin last Thursday to hear me speak, I'm sorry, you're about to hear the exact same message again. Um, So come back next week and you'll hear a new one. Um, The fundamental claim of Easter— I think most people know. That is, that Jesus of Nazareth, a Galilean carpenter turned prophet and spiritual leader who was tortured and executed by the Roman government, abnormally emerged alive from his tomb the Sunday following his crucifixion. Essentially, the entire Christian faith is built on the union of that execution and that exit. Now, it goes without saying that most people are skeptical about the claim that Jesus really rose from the dead. And I'm not, you know, some people who aren't Christians, I mean, sometimes, I'm sure sometimes Christians go, you know, right? Um, but one of the things that I've recognized more and more doing the ministry thing is that when I talk to people about their objections, both Christians and non-Christians, the objections really have less and less to do with the actual evidence for the resurrection. It has everything more to do with a very normal, very understandable, emotional objection to the resurrection that we have. Um, and here's why I think it is. That although the claim of the resurrection is potentially exhilarating— It's potentially exhilarating. It is definitely terrifying. It's definitely terrifying. If Jesus actually brushed off death and is therefore very likely who he says he is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the King of all creation, the returning heroic King, then that's, on one level, that's exhilarating because that may mean that resurrection life is actually possible now and forever. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think living forever sounds good. I I mean, maybe I'm just old-fashioned, but I think living forever in relationship to an infinitely infinitely creative, interesting, and beautiful God in in a context that he's created for our mutual enjoyment together, that, that sounds pretty good for me. And if if you think heaven's going to be boring, I think I'm just going to give Jesus a shot at making it infinitely interesting. I'm I'm willing to give it a shot. If it turns out boring, you know, we'll play bridge or something. I don't know. Um, But here's the thing. Even though it's potentially exhilarating, it's definitely terrifying. Because who wakes up in the morning and says, man, I'd like to have a king reigning in absolute, undefied authority over my entire life, over everything that I do, think, be, act, am, the whole world, everything that's in it. I mean, who wakes up wanting that kind of authority in their life? An advisor, maybe, but a king, not quite as much. I mean, nobody's really looking to give up that much autonomy. And a big part of that comes from our fear of being religious. 
I mean, what most modern people, even people who sometimes go to church, what most modern people, especially in this city, really believe about deeply committed Christian believers is that people who really believe in things like the Bible and the resurrection of Jesus really end up to be stunted people. That is that their religion holds them back from real personal fulfillment or real self-actualization. Many of us suspect that the social and psychological effects of religious faith really diminish a person's humanity instead of enhance it. That's what we really believe deep down. Or for those of you who, who are humanities students, what Nietzsche called this slave mentality of Christianity, Freud called the wish fulfillment in Christianity, and what Mark called the opiate anesthetizing effects on social change in Christianity. Any kind of talk of a religious faith in something, in some clear and definite sense, sense sets off our religion alarms. It activates our religious skepticism or even our religious cynicism. For example, <clears throat> we think that though religion says it helps us cope with relational turmoil and difficulties of life, because of God's hiddenness, it really ends up leaving people cold with a, even a worse sense of cosmic abandonment. I mean, why add earthly disappointments to cosmic, cosmic disappointments to earthly ones, right? So your father abandoned you. So believe in Jesus, who never actually speaks to you, which makes you feel even more abandoned, right? That's what people think about religious faith, right? Or they feel like um, religious faith is just always constantly making people into something that they're not, right? Like a kiwi shaving his back? That's not funny. <laughs> or that— uh, that religion is an illusion, that people act like they can hold these divine mysteries and dogmas or doctrines, but they're really just pretending to hold the sun. And that the only way you can get those doctrines is if you use bad logic or fake intellectualism, things that may, it might look like good logic on the surface, but really when you, you deal with it, it, it really isn't. <clears throat> like that. That was my sixth grade math test. <laughs> or... Or for some of us, yeah, you get that later, don't you? Okay, so, <clears throat> or for some of us, our reasons why we're concerned about having to become religious if Jesus really is king, they're shallower reasons, but they're still just as serious to us. For example, for, for some of us, um, some of us are just afraid that religion will make those of us who have it prog make progressively bad fashion decisions. <laughs> or hair decisions. <laughs> right? I, I mean, I actually knew a girl um, when I was doing youth ministry who— um, who her holdup about believing in Jesus was she was afraid she was going to have to listen to Christian music. Which in the 1990s, I mean, I can understand that objection. <laughs> right? But what I want you to hear, here's what you got to hear this morning, is that Jesus never invited people to any of those things. In fact, um, philosopher Merrill Westfall—hold on. I don't want to—I want you to have nightmares. Um— <laughs> Philosopher Meryl Westfall in a book called Suspicion and Faith shows that all the critiques of religion found in our own minds and in the minds of writers like Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche are all found in the Bible itself. In fact, the most scathing critiques of religion ever written are in the Bible. I have a slide for this, sorry. And they predate these Enlightenment writers or ourselves by an average of 2,700 to 2,000 years. We're just creatively a little late on these things. And one of the things that we have to think about before we look at things like the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is the psychology by which we come to the question in the first place. I mean, do we come to the question of Jesus' resurrection with sort of a healthy skepticism? So, 
or, or are we really coming to the question of the resurrection with really an overdone cynicism, right? I mean, are we skeptics, people are, who are intellectually cautious, but we're ready to listen and really desire good logic and meaningful evidence, or are we cynics? Are we people who really think we know what's credible and what's not credible before we even hear an argument on either side or weigh what's being said and interact with the evidence itself? There's a lot of people who think that they're just healthily skeptical about Christian faith who are really just ignorantly cynical. Okay, I'm just going to put that out there for you. I try to be an equal opportunity offender. We'll see. I don't know about you, but my personal temperament is, um, is to be sarcastic, snarky, a little intellectualish, and, and cynical. Okay, I'm, I'm that guy who takes, takes personal pleasure in not being particularly gullible, and I'm the guy who will tell you outlandish falsehoods just to see if you'll believe them so I can laugh at you. Okay, that's— <laughs> I, I do that. In fact, after I gave this talk on Thursday night, my, my oldest daughter, who just got baptized, did exactly that to her grandmother in front of my wife and I. And my wife turns to me and goes, she goes, there's your sense of humor. <laughs> but one of the things that I realized about gullibility and cynicism was this. I was out ra- raking leaves in, in my yard thinking about this. And one of the things I, I just— realized was, do you know, you know, cynicism is just the negative form of gullibility. That's all it is. It's just gullibility in the negative rather than, than gullibility in the positive. It's just, to put it in these words, it's positive gullibility is Elmo's way of believing wrong. Cynicism is just Oscar the Grouch's way of believing wrong. I mean, think about it this way. Gullibility, both cynicism and gullibility are defense mechanisms. They're both defense mechanisms, okay? Gullibility, but they both fail you because gullibility gets you what? It gets you false positives, right? It, it, it causes you to believe in things that aren't actually true, right? But now just think about cynicism. What's cynicism? Cynicism is just gets you false negatives. It causes you not to believe in things that are true. There is no intellectual shortcut, Right? You could be gullible, you could be snarky, you're just falling off the wa- you know, wagon dif- in different ways. There is no way to just get clicked into a position and think intellectually you've arrived and you can just say yes to everything or no to everything. A lot of Christians should be a little more skeptical about certain things, and a lot of non-Christians should realize they're really cynical about some things that they shouldn't be. And here's, here's the worst thing about being cynical, and one of the reasons why the longer I'm this Gen X cynic, I realize there's something to those sentimental builders, generation people who are like in their 80s, who like love Reader's Digest stories. There's something to that, and here's what there is to it. Cynicism actually keeps you from believing in things, but it keeps you from believing in some of the best things because some of the best things in life are some of the most unbelievable things. They're some of the things that are just too good to be true, but they're real. For example, I remember um, being in Los Angeles with a 26-year-old girl and a couple other dudes that had all been in my youth group. And, and the girl was kind of taking—she said she was taking a break from Christianity— while she was studying film writing. And she said, I'm just not going to get married. She's, I'm, she's like, I, you know, I, I know I, my parents were married, and I've seen what it is. The divorce rate is over 50%. That means I have a 50% chance of being a single parent. Like, I would never gamble on those odds. And she was just cynical, cynical about marriage, right? F- with good evidence, right? But I'll just tell you, um, if— I felt this—I mean, I felt the same. I was terrified when I got married. 
I mean, I wanted to get married, but I was terrified. I was, you know, I was both gullible and cynical, but I did it. And I found that trying to love and be loved as an imperfect person with an imperfect person has turned out in the long run to be one of the things that has changed me the most for the better and has been the most personally fulfilling for me and for my wife and has allowed me to participate in the creation of three other lives that though they impinge upon my personal freedom enormously, <laughs> can be really rewarding. But cynicism wipes out those kinds of things because we're protecting ourselves by not believing in things that scare us. Well, and, and what's the most unlikely but possibly greatest thing of all? The existence of God and the reality of the resurrection. And an undue cynicism will cause you to miss the greatest opportunity that there is. That's the great danger of it. And the fact is, is that we live in a society during an information age. So almost everything you believe, you've believed somebody. That's why you think you know it. You haven't really checked out 98% of what you believe, right? It's the information age where you can't just go to the lab on every single thing that comes down the pike. You can't fly to Iraq and make sure that every bomb fell right where CNN said it did. You just don't have any reason not to believe it. So you believe it. Almost everything we believe, we believe because people tell us. How many thousands of things do you think you believe that are actually false that would then classify you as gullible? I mean, I probably have a thousand things in my head that I believe that are false because I thought I could trust the person who I believed I just did. Intellectual life is not that simple as just, well, I'm not gullible, I'm skeptical. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, half the people I talk to are cynically skeptical because they've gullibly believed somebody that told them to be cynically skeptical because people they've never met must be awful. <laughs> Sorry, I think I got off track a little there. Let me tell you a quick story. I think I'm already supposed to be done. This is David Phillips. David Phillips in 2000 was in a grocery store buying Healthy Choice frozen meals, which means he's in dorky middle age. Now, <coughs> what he noticed was—sorry about that. Sorry, um, what he noticed was that there was a, um, a thing going on with Healthy Choice that if you got 10 proofs of purchase and sent them into Healthy Choice, they would send you a voucher for 500 frequent flyer miles and there was no limit. And he was like, $1.75, 10 times— Food, frequent. He goes, this is a pretty good deal. Then he goes two aisles over and he finds a can of soup. Healthy choice, 75 cents. Proof of purchase. He's like, the math is improving. Goes a couple more aisles over and guess what he finds? Anybody know? Pudding in individual cups, each one with an individual proof of purchase on it. 25 cents a cup. Buys every cup of pudding from Davis to Fresno. $3,150 later, a full garage, living room, backyard, etc. He realizes he's running out of time. He's never going to be able to pull off all the proof of purchases, get him things and send them in before the deadline. So he donates them all to the Salvation Army on the condition that the Salvation Army will pull all the proof of purchases, put them in bags for him. They, do, they go, sure, put, pudding's awesome, right? And if you've ever watched Scrubs, you know that no matter how much you eat it, you'll only love it more. So... He does this. He puts them all in bags, and he sends them off to Healthy Choice. Meanwhile, he gets on travel websites, and he tells people. He's like, dudes, I found this thing. It's real. There's—you can, you can fly to Europe for like 75 bucks a pop if you will just do some work. 
<clears throat> now, I want to read you a couple things from what happened. This is what he said. This is after he said it and before he'd heard anything. He said, the promotion specifically said that I could get miles for any healthy choice product, but still, it seemed like there was a good chance that they'd get me on some technicality. Right? Now think about that. Was he skeptical? There was some skepticism, right? But he used his intelligence as much as he could. He put together the evidence for what was there, and then he had to make a decision. See, people, people, some people say, you don't need faith to go through life. You just need empirical evidence, and you just act on empirical evidence. What the heck ever, okay? You never have the data you want, ever, ever. Nobody ever has the data they want. You always have to look at the data you've got and then make a call, and that's called faith. And so David Phillips looked at the data he had. He looked at the opportunity in front of him, what he stood to gain or lose, and he made a bet. He bet that he had found, he'd actually found a real loophole, and he went for it. And he put 3,100 bucks on the table. And other people went, ah, impossible. Well, six weeks later, he started getting envelopes in the mail. Stuff full of 500-mile vouchers. All counted 1.25 million, million frequent fly miles. This is him in South Korea. We're Facebook friends, so we're very close now. <laughs> I emailed my brother, who is an engineer, a civil engineer in Davis, California. I was like, okay, so this guy is a civil engineer in Davis, California. You're a civil engineer in Davis, California. Do you know Dave Phillips, the pudding guy? And my brother goes, no, I'm. He's like, I play poker with him every week. So I, that's, the, that's two steps of separation for me, just so you know. And three for you. <clears throat> I think David Phillips is a good example of the right balance between skepticism, curiosity, and faith. Those things have to be balanced. You can't get away from that. He wasn't gullible, but he was also willing to use his mental faculties and make the best call that he could. He didn't allow cynicism to create a false negative in one of the coolest opportunities of his life. And so when I turn to you and say, hey, let's look at the evidence for the resurrection for a minute here. What I want to say to you is, don't let your skepticism or cynicism create a false negative on the greatest opportunity of your life, which is to see that there is good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and that there is a huge relevance to your life if that's true. Because scripture says that that same power is the power he gives all who believe. So let me just proceed briefly. I'm just going to use this guy, William Lane Craig's organization, just because he did a PhD on the subject, and it's pretty lean, okay? So I'm didn't just, not just copying him for no reason, but because you don't want to be here forever. And this guy makes it seven minutes long, so here we go. There's basically four facts that Craig offers that are pretty much agreed upon by New Testament scholars around the world, both believing and non-believing. The first is that after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb. By the way, I'm sorry for all the children's people who I, sh I think I was supposed to let children's go, children go like 15 minutes ago. So I'm just going to keep going, okay? Sorry if you didn't leave. After his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb. Secondly, on the Sunday after the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Third, on different occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. 
And lastly, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. Okay, now let me go through these and give you the, a little bit, a little, a little tiny bit of the evidence behind them, okay? So the first one I'm not going to cover because I told you this would only be seven minutes long this part, and most people don't have a problem with the idea that Jesus was buried. Very few people argue against that. And it's just a total non-starter when you talk to anybody in scholarship in this area. So let's just go right to the second one. That is that Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Now on all three of these, the main evidence is this that there are multiple attestations of eyewitnesses. I mean, what, what, what else are you looking for, right? For, so the resurrection of Jesus is the sort of historical event there can't be physical evidence for, right? There can't be physical evidence for it. Therefore, the only kind of evidence you can have is good testimony evidence. In a court of law, we'd call it, you know, we'd want eyewitnesses. We'd want more than one of them. We'd want different sorts of eyewitnesses. And we would want their perspectives not to agree totally. Because if every word agreed totally, what did that mean? They got together, right? So they're not really independent witnesses. They're colluded witnesses. So if the, if the Gospels are the sort of evidence we'd want, we would want different accounts that agreed on the fundamental things that we wanted, but you could tell they're seen from slightly different perspectives. And in certain places, they might even look a little contradictory. We would want that because that would tell us that this, the sources are really independent sources rather than all of just the same source stated a number of times. Do you, are you following that? Okay. And that's the case with each of these. For, so, for example, on the second one, the empty tomb has multiple independent attestations in all four Gospels. Now, Mark's Gospel, if you look in your Bible, if you were to open up your pew Bible to chapter 16, after a certain verse, I'm not sure, I think it's verse 7 or 6, there's something that says, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have Mark 16 blah, 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 through whatever. Which means the ending of Mark that we're all used to reading was not written by Mark. Okay. It was added later. Now, everything in it's true because they just took it from Luke and Matthew. So everything in the end of chapter 16 of Mark is true because it's, it's taken from another witness elsewhere in the Bible. But it's not what Mark wrote. What that means is Matthew didn't copy Mark, which is what most Testament, New Testament scholars believe for a really long time, which means Mark and Matthew are different sources. They're different eyewitness sources. Luke is clearly different, and then you've got John, which is another one. You've got twice in Acts of the Apostles from different people, and then you've got Paul in 1 Corinthians. That's five right there. And all of them, quote, are quoting multiple eyewitnesses so that when John quotes that he was a witness to the resurrection, he said, there with me that day were Peter, these four women, these— And so he says, look, I wasn't alone. There were all these others, and you can go ask them. Now, the second thing is, is that um, the fact that women found the tomb of Jesus in the first, in first century Jewish, Jewish society was very, very embarrassing. It would be a little like me coming to you and say, saying, if, if it happened right now, Jesus is risen from the dead. And you're like, how do you know? I was like, there were these six preschoolers that came and told me that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. And you'd be like, well, that's very credible. <laughs> They couldn't possibly be mixed up. Now, of course, obviously that sounds ridiculous in Madison in 2011, right? You're like, oh, look at that sexist man up there. He's awful. I'm still—okay. Here's the point. In first century Jewish, Jewish culture, the word of a woman was worth, was worth exactly nothing. Josephus, the first century Jewish-Roman historian, tells us that um, no woman's testimony was admissible in a Roman or Jewish court of law. That is, if— 
13 Jewish women and one Jewish man both saw an event, and the testimony of the one man differed from the 13 women. The 13 women's testimony was completely inadmissible. You went with the one guy. Period. Now, if you were making up a story about who found the empty tomb, and you wanted the most credible witnesses you could possibly get, who would it have been? Right? You just wouldn't mention the women. You just go, so the women went and got the disciples. Then the disciples went. Let's just start with the disciples. Right? Now, in 2011, it's totally different, right? We're like, women, when, who, what does it matter? Right? I mean, probably the women did a better job of, of figuring out where he was buried so they could go and actually show their love. And I mean, if you're going to be gender— if you're going to be sexist about it, you got to give the women the benefit of the doubt in this case. The best, the best reason to explain why women are said to have found the tomb in the, in the canonical gospels is the best explanation is just because they did. Because there's no other good reason for why first century Jews would make women the first people to find an empty tomb. All right. Fact three, <clears throat> the experience of Jesus alive from the dead. Now, you might think that the idea that people experience Jesus alive from the dead would be the most controversial of these four facts. It's actually not as controversial because there's more independent attestations of it. Whereas the last one had maybe six independent source attestations, this one has seven or eight. And in um, 1 Corinthians 15, there's a place where the Apostle Paul says— that not only did Jesus appear to Peter and the twelve and whatever, it says, it, says, it says this, it says, and he appeared to 500 other disciples all at one time. And then he says this, some of who are dead, whom are dead, he, he uses euphemism, fall asleep, but most of whom are still alive. So what he's saying is, and First Corinthians is written about 52, 53. So it's only 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And so what he's saying is, when Jesus rose from the dead, there was at least one point where 500 people saw him all at once, alive, after he was buried, and the tomb was empty, and most of them you can go and ask right now. So he's making a claim that's evidential and falsifiable. And he's claiming that there's maybe 350 to 450 possible witnesses that you can go check this out with. This is the best you can get to a historical footnote. There's things like this elsewhere in the New Testament because sometimes people go, well, you know, the, the Bible, it's just a theological understanding of Jesus. It's not, it's not historical evidence. Really? Because there's a place in Mark 15 where Jesus is carrying his cross, to, cross to, the, to the spot of the crucifixion and he falls over and it says that the Romans went and they got this guy, Simon from Cyrene, from North Africa, and they made him carry Jesus' cross for him, right? And then it says, Mark says right after this, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and then he just goes on. And you're like, what? What? The only reason Mark would say that is because Alexander and Rufus are still alive. They're known to the churches and the people that read Mark's gospel could go and ask them. It's a historical footnote. Um, Richard Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, or he's a British scholar, has done a really good job recently showing how there are many markers in the New Testament Gospels that, yes, they're theological documents, but they're also evidentialist historical documents because the, the historical nature of the resurrection is the theological meaning of Jesus' life and death. You can't separate the two. Lastly, that the disciples— 
sort of miraculously came to believe that Jesus was alive after he was dead. In a 2006 debate, Bill Craig debated a guy named Bart Ehrman. Anybody ever heard of Bart Ehrman? Very, very well-known Christian origin scholar. I think he's at UNC Chapel Hill. And um, uh, they were having this debate back and forth, and Ehrman's like, this is ridiculous. And Bill Craig's like, what's ridiculous? So Bill Craig goes, okay, just give me Give me an alternative story. Just make up any hypothetical possible story that takes the evidence we have into account. And Ehrman says, okay, well, think about it this way. What if Jesus was buried by Joseph Arimathea, like it says, and then two of Jesus' brothers, half-brothers, didn't like what was done with Jesus' body. So they decide to go and take the body from the tomb. So they go, they roll the stone away, they take Jesus' dead body out of it, they're going through the city, they're stopped by Roman guards, they're not, they're not Roman citizens, which means they can be executed on the spot. So they get in an argument, they, the Roman guards just execute them on the spot, they throw them in an, in an unmarked grave, Boom! You got to bury Jesus. You got an empty tomb. Nobody knows where he went. That, that's all there is to it. And Craig's response, which I think is a good one, is he's like, that doesn't account for, that accounts for fact one and two. It doesn't account for anything else. It doesn't account for 500 people seeing him alive at once. And it doesn't account for the fact that the disciples all went to their deaths believing passionately with this enormous amount of conviction that Jesus was alive. There's no, nothing in Judaism to give you the idea that somebody like this would rise from the dead. Jews had no belief in that. So to believe this is the case is just wild. But yet, Judas the betrayer dies. John the elder, who was the youngest, ends up dying in exile. The other ten all die for the faith. Plus hundreds of others, including, for example, Paul, who was beheaded, who saw Jesus raised from the dead. You start adding this stuff up and it gets a little eerie. And plus, in 120, there's a letter from Pliny the Younger, who's a regional commander, and Trajan, the Roman emperor. Pliny wrote, and he goes, what do I do with Christians? If they won't recant Christianity, do I just— or if I get a Christian, do I just kill them, or do I—what do I do? Torture them? And Trajan says, you always give them a chance to recant and burn incense to the emperor as God. If they'll do that, you let them go. Because the Romans were good politicians. This is what they knew. If you kill a political dissident, you've never—you haven't really won, have you? You haven't really won. You've only half won. It's getting that person to back down and to lose their testimony, to lose what they spoke against you. If you can get that person discredited or backed down or whatever, you lose much better than if you kill them. You kill them, you make a martyr out of them. Everybody knows what that does politically. And so Trajan said, Pliny, you don't just kill them. Killing them is the last thing you do. Try to get them to recant. Give them an opportunity, maybe torture them a little bit. See what you can do to get them to say, oh, I was wrong about this. Now, there's some time difference there, right? That letter's from 120. We don't have any other Roman correspondence about what they did. But that's probably what happened with most of them. Because, because if you're sitting there going, well, Nick, of course. Yeah, they died, for, they, died for, they died for it, but it was a lie. And lots of people die for lies all the time. That's not really true. People die for lies all the time. But if this was a lie, the disciples knew it. And people do not all, all the time die for a lie that they know is a lie when they can get out of dying if they just recant. Chris Pepler said, just think about um, the Nixon White House. How when the Watergate thing came out, they all said, we're all going to go to the grave with this. Now one person is going to leak this out. We're not going to let this lie get outside. We're not going to let the public know the truth. How long do they last? One week, no death threats. Right? But yet, all of these disciples 
go to the grave, no one recants. That's a little conspicuous. Let me just end with this. I don't know of any good naturalistic or materialistic explanations for the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know any. Do you know any? Because if there isn't one, here's what I'd submit. I think the evidence points in a pretty specific direction. That a probably short, probably smelly, Galilean carpenter who never went more than 200 miles from his home, but yet how somehow, by getting executed, transformed the entire world, may have risen from the dead. And if he has, then the stuff he said about himself is probably true. That he's Lord, King, and Son of God, Redeemer of the world, and Returner for all believers. An offerer of resurrection, life, and power to all who believe. And so I'd encourage you to believe. And if you've got holdups still, I'd encourage you to go to Alpha. And if you realize that one of the ways that you've been entrapped and that you, where you need rest is, is in the whole outlay of your life, particularly how your, your money's get, you can't, you can't make your life work because of things that have got to hold you. Go to FPU. Come back to church next week. Be part of the community of believers. Let Easter restart something for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would so convince us and convict us of the reality of the resurrection that we would we would have the, the courage to believe that our cynicism would be rolled back that we would not miss the opportunity to believe in the one who made death roll back and who can give us the real life the new life the different kind of life we've always really wanted I pray that you do great things among us with your power in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.